And this season of the Making It in Nashville podcast is sponsored by Range Urgent Care. Range has a very special offer for all business owners and honestly anyone in Nashville. So please stick around to the end of this ad to learn more about that sponsorship. But first, we want to tell you why we love Range Urgent Care specifically for our small business. As a small business owner, it can be really expensive to maintain a traditional healthcare plan for you and your employees. And this is where Range Urgent Care, an Asheville-based clinic, can help really make a difference. With their business membership plan, you can give you and your employees the peace of mind and help protect them and their financial futures by giving them a place to go for medical care and avoid a potentially life-changing emergency room bill. The great thing is is that an employee membership is just $45 a month per employee, and it includes unlimited urgent care visits that cost $0. These visits include services like x-rays, flu shots, and even prescriptions from Range's in-house pharmacy. The membership also includes free virtual visits for those more mild complaints such as colds, rashes, UTIs, so that your employees don't have to leave their home to get checked out by a medical professional, which is pretty important during the current pandemic. Their employer portal makes it easy to manage your employee roster and invoices from wherever you are, and their business memberships can scale to the size of your business. With two locations, one on Merriman Avenue in Asheville and the other in Black Mountain, they make it very convenient as an option for any Asheville local business. All right, so maybe you're not a business owner or perhaps a corporate membership is just a little bit outside of reach for you and your business today. Range can still help. They offer a wide variety of other memberships, including family and individual memberships. And you don't even need to be a member to visit Range Urgent Care as they are also in network with most major insurances and offer affordable and transparent flat rate visits. And now for the special offer. Just for the listeners of the Making It in Nashville podcast, Range is offering a free first month of their annual membership. And that's any membership, whether it's business, professional, family, as Sarah said, all of them will get you your free first month uh, visit makingitinashville.com forward slash range to learn more about this very special offer and more about the subscription plans. Again, that's makingitinashville.com forward slash range for a free first month in any annual membership. John, it is truly an honor to have you on the podcast. Uh, seriously, um, we, I think since moving here, have always, I have always personally, I think, dreamed of having you on the podcast and getting to interview. So we feel very, very privileged. Um, and we're really excited to tell your story today. Mm. Yeah, we, uh, we, we've interviewed Derek in, in season one, if you remember, oh. and and for any of you who have gone that far back into the archives, you might know about our excitement about all of the, the rhubarb family restaurants. And so having you on, just to reiterate, is a very special moment. We're big fans. And um, I guess, Sarah, John, we're going to put you on the spot and say, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh at, like, what's the tweetable bio of John Fleer? There's no tweetable bio. It's, <laughs> I've been around too long uh, to abide by 140 characters or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, failed graduate student. Um, rolled into being a, a culinary student. Got lucky 
to have my first job outside of the culinary school be at uh, a place called Blackberry Farm. Um, wanted to come home to North Carolina and took a pit stop in Cashers uh, during the 08 recession. But the ultimate goal was always to be not only back in North Carolina, but uh, to be in Asheville. And we've been here since 2011, opened Rhubarb, and we can talk about the rest. Sure. <laughs> well, and not to, um, I don't know, be, well, I am overzealous about it, but um, I, a little story about how you came on uh, our radar, John, or my radar, which was I think we, we, we first came to Asheville one of our first times visiting. We looked up a place to eat and we ate at Rhubarb. And uh, it was fantastic. It was one of the best meals that we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we ended up talking to Derek. your team, to yep. Derek, to all of the staff, and they were fantastic. <laughs> there was a, a semi-boneless quail, hen, Cornish hen? Yeah. Is that one of the two? Tiny quail. bird. <laughs> if I remember, if I remember, it was it was quail. Yeah, and I never necessarily had quail, and I've never seen something semi-boned, and I was mesmerized. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. And Tony was. Yeah. Exactly. He was fascinated by this. But then I remember I I went home, you know, and later I talked to my dad, and I told him I said, "Hey, we're thinking about moving to Asheville, and you know, we ate at this fantastic restaurant called Rhubarb." So my dad, being my dad, I think ended up looking it up and later told me, oh, I, I know the chef. I know uh, John Fleer. Well, not, not personally, but I know of him. And apparently he used to go to Blackberry Farm all the time um, or frequently. Yeah. And ever since then, he has been uh, saving me newspaper clippings of anywhere where John Fleer <laughs> has been mentioned or any of the restaurants and then proceeds to mail them to the me physical we have physical uh yeah pr at and and uh stories of rhubarb and and john fleur and so how about because blueberry farm blackberry, blackberry farm doesn't necessarily mean anything to me if you can give us a little bit of the like what are the details of some of these places because i i i now know that they're very kind of important destination either resort hotel thingies uh help maybe those who don't know the pre-story uh give us a little context about what makes those two places so special okay i'll do that but i first have to go back to the semi-boneless quail (laughs) okay Mm -hmm. and and direct you to uh an old gary larson uh far side cartoon Which is a, a a one a one pager uh, that is a depiction of the boneless chicken ranch. Uh, just just go look that up uh, for a laugh. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> An old old Far Side cartoon that I will never ever forget. So. We will make a note. There will be links to it in the show notes page. <laughs> making it in Nashville dot com. Love it. And then to, to Blackberry. Yeah. Um. I mean, you know, I do feel, uh, I feel charmed in a lot of ways, uh, but that was one of the most uh, fortuitous, lucky things that happened to me um, uh, ever. 
also backed up by a lot of uh, heartache and sweat and blood. But um, yeah, Blackberry was and is still probably the gem of hospitality in the South. Uh, it is a small resort hotel in the foothills of East Tennessee. Uh, that actually borders the back end of the property actually borders the Smoky Mountain National Park. Wow. So um, that gives you a sense of its sort of middle of nowhere slash center of your own universe feel. Got it. Um, is it so is it known for like presidents going like I, I think I've heard of a place. No. So is it I mean, so it's it's changed a bit. Um, it is owned by Chris and Sandy Bell. Uh, Sandy uh, started Ruby Tuesdays. And Chris is the sort of heart and soul visionary of this feeling of hospitality that Blackberry creates. Um, it started as a corporate, when they bought it, sorry, it's been around since the 30s. But when they bought it, it was they used it as a corporate retreat primarily. And so sort of because of that, the arc of its initial development as a property was much more uh, so, right, I mean, in this day and age, you'd yeah. be more likely to find uh, Jeff Bezos there than Obama. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, a lot of a lot of well-heeled, uh, well-off business folks who might not. I mean, Jeff Bezos might have been the wrong example because everybody knows who he is. But yeah. CEOs, yada, yada, yada. Um, and it really... It evolved from uh, this corporate retreat, and in the early in 1991, it it finally opened to the public as a uh, as a small 23 bedroom resort oh, wow. uh, country inn. Um, I arrived uh, about 10 months after they opened. I had no freaking idea what I was doing. I was fresh out of culinary school. And uh, none of us did. I was talking with my uh, sort of partner in crime, uh, who is still there, a gentleman named Brian Lee, who developed the hotel and guest services side of what Blackberry is today. Um, and we both sort of laugh about how naive we were. Wow. But yeah. that's part of its success is that, you know, when you have someone, some people who, who go into this business with a with a vision and uh, and have to figure out how to run it uh, successfully without a whole lot of uh, background and knowledge? You get good or bad. You get a product that's unique. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so when you when you arrived there, first of all, what what was your position as you went into Blackberry Farm? So I was. Fresh out of culinary school, I had done a year uh, in a program that they call the fellowship program. Um, I was doing a fellowship at the CIA after I graduated, which essentially meant that I was a was the sous chef in a in one of their four public restaurants. So I worked with uh, my person who has been my mentor ever since then, a chef named Jonathan Zierfoss at one of the restaurants, which was called St. Andrew's Cafe. 
Um, I also worked on the weekends as uh, Mary Tyler Moore's personal chef, Whoa. which seems, seems to pa- fascinate uh, lots of people. Yeah, and, I mean, what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was it was cool. Um, she's she was uh, a dear, wonderful human. Uh, she and her husband lived, I guess, uh, on Central Park. Uh, during the week and then every weekend they would come up at a horse farm in Millbrook, which as y'all may know, it's, you know, 30 minutes from Hyde Park. It was about 40 minutes from Rhinebeck where I was living while I was uh, in culinary school. Wow. And so, so did- I would work. It, it worked out <laughs> such that this fellowship was that particular restaurant operated Monday through Friday because it was the first one in the curriculum that uh, where students were uh, operating it. Uh, the other two, which were much fancier, uh, and more involved ran, uh, like Tuesday through, uh, Saturday schedule. Anyway, all that to say I worked Monday through Friday, um, at, at St. Andrews, got up in the morning on Saturday, went shopping, for whatever I had planned for Mary and Robert and uh, went shopping, drove out to their house in Millbrook, worked at us. I did not stay out there because I was close enough, but I would, you know, work, cook Saturday lunch, Saturday dinner, and then whatever, whatever their schedule was on Sundays. Uh, and it worked out so that Mary was, uh, Mary was diabetic and because St. Andrews, where I was working, was sort of nutritional cuisine focused, they sort of, whoever her PA was, uh, went to someone who was at least somewhat familiar with health concerns. Right, yeah. So, wow. I mean, what was there a particular meal or something that um, her and her husband loved to eat that you would make for them? Or... Um, they were they no no i mean like any and this is this is why i mean okay how do i put this i i as much as i loved working for them as a personal chef i would never be a personal chef again that that dynamic is not something that uh that I'm looking for. And it wasn't a negative experience at all, but it definitely, it definitely taught me that that was something. And here I was early on in my culinary career, definitely taught me that that was something that I could check off my list and never want to do again. Yeah. Uh, Which I find, I find so interesting because I feel like Tony and I have talked about this. I feel like I'm the opposite where I, I would rather cook for a friend or like one small group than, a restaurant full of people, which is clearly the opposite for you. It seems like, yeah. yeah. But also, it's I have just... to imagine, I have to imagine there's more to it than just the num, like the quantity of food that you're preparing. Sure. And and it's one thing to have two friends over for dinner. It's another to have two employers telling With you particular to needs cook six and, meals, yeah. you know, over the course of two days. So I I, I can't imagine, and I look forward to kind of hopefully unpacking some of the dynamics that uh differentiate let's say making food for family and friends and being a home cook and then 
running multiple restaurants, right? So there's a huge range of like, I like to make eggs. I do eggs and bacon. Okay. I don't, it's not bad. You would, Sarah, everything else is probably wildly better, uh, but I, I can make eggs a couple different ways. That is so different than managing multiple restaurants. And so the, the continuum from interest in food to deciding to go to culinary school to getting your first restaurant gigs, whether it's part of the curriculum or private chefing, to where we are today, which is three restaurants all very close to the heart of downtown Asheville, is a seemingly long road. And so we're at yeah, less in the brain. And so we're we're so that was the gray hair that I was oh, not the brain. <laughs> so so how there's a couple thoughts that I have about uh, landing at BlackBerry ten months after it opens with um, what I would consider the most prestigious degree piece of paper that you can have about food, at least in the United States. Uh, and I imagine it was true at the time as well. So you have this piece of paper, you have a little bit of experience, and you walk into a resort that has the aspirations of being the best in the country or best in the world. And what things are forced upon you in, in learning? Uh, what things happen by chance? What things happen on purpose? And how long are you there? Well, I was there for almost 15 years. So I had left in 2007. Okay. I started there in 1992. Wow. Um, and that's a long time to work in one place, especially in your first job after culinary school. Yeah. Um, remembering that, I mean, there's a lot of people that may graduate from any prestigious institution. Mm -hmm. Um with a piece of paper in their hand, but they're not given the job of, uh, you know, whatever you want to, vice president of operations coming out of, you know, wherever, you know, mm -hmm. Harvard, yeah. Yale, Duke, whatever, um, that you don't walk out and say, here's my, here's my pass to, to run this company or this division of your company. Um, so that's why I say that I really had no business being in that position. Um, the, the 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 sort of cool story of how it was linked was that the dining room manager at St. Andrews was also teaching a a continuing education class in dining room management. The innkeepers, not the owners, but the innkeepers of Blackberry were up there at CIA uh, taking his class. I had done almost a year of this fellowship when I was only supposed to do six months, but I was really enjoying the heck out of what I was doing. Um, and, but I knew that my time was kind of, uh, the fuse was, was, was burning and I was going to have to leave that position soon. And so Nyhoff said to Bernadette Doyle, who was the innkeeper uh, at Blackberry, she said, I've got this guy you really should meet. He, he really wants to return to the South. Um, he's done a great job for us. Um, so he set up a meeting and she came in, uh, Bernadette came in and, and observed the kitchen one night while I was, I mean, essentially my job as the fellow or as the sous chef was to run the, the kitchen while the chef instructor 
served as mostly as the instructor. So all the ordering, all the expediting, you know, a good deal of, of the training and we would rotate classes every three weeks. So it was like every week you're, you've got a new kitchen team, uh, which wow. was the best possible management training uh, ever. <laughs> um, so that's, that's how that, so Bernadette and I hit it off. We sat down for an hour in the office of St. Andrews and she kind of wooed me as to what, what those possibilities were at Blackberry. And I was just smitten, uh, even though I'd never in my wildest dreams thought that I would live in the hills of East Tennessee. Yeah. Wow. Well, wow. You asked me a multi-layered question. Yeah, and you did a great job answering. Uh, yeah. I, I, what what a crazy what a crazy, you know, uh, educational opportunity. I just that seems so perfect as like, oh, we get three weeks. I'm going to teach, develop, train, and then have to work with people who don't who are starting over from square one. Like that's seem, seemingly the hardest part of growing a team or a business is the onboarding and ramping up. And then once people get into a groove, it seems like that would be, you know, maintaining is a different thing than getting up to speed is my guess. Yeah. Well, and I, I have a question that's kind of like way before in this timeline, which is, I know that you studied, is it philosophy? Philosophy and religion. Philosophy and religion in college. And then you went to the CIA. So t- tell us about <laughs> Central Intelligence Agency. No, yeah, no, not not that CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. Sorry. Um, like, how did you know that you wanted to go to culinary school? Was there a moment there that that led you to that path? When I was in college, um, I did a study abroad program in Venice, huh. Italy. And that is where I... We're familiar <laughs> with Venice, yeah. Venice, not not California, I guess would be that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, I, that is where the fire was lit. Mm. And some of it was about food. Some of it was about the cooking of food. Um, a major part of it was about the culture of food that I experienced. So Wake Forest University, um, which is where my dad taught until he retired, owns a home on the Grand Canal uh, in Venice, which every semester they sort of stock with 20 to 24 students, a professor uh, in in a little neighborhood uh, that is uh, sort of on the uh, non-Piazza San Marco side where the Salute is. And very close to the Salute. Uh, And uh, so it was a, even then when I was there, Venice was a very touristy town. And this was forever ago. But we were in a, we were in a legitimate neighborhood. And that feeling of going out to, uh, to the butcher, to the fruity vendolo, to, you know, to the, to the bakery and all of that, that was just like mind blowing to me. It was just so much, was so fun. Um, and 
it was there that I realized that it was possible to uh, sort of have an existence where uh, you thought a lot about what you ate. You thought a lot, a lot about who you were going to eat with and you, uh, and you spent that time eating, solving the problems of the world, uh, by, by creating bonds of family, friendship, community, all of that. So, um, I had been cooking some in college when I came back, I kept cooking, um, I graduated, uh, from college, went into a graduate program, uh, after working as a year as in the, in the, in a library, uh, and, um, needed a job in graduate school to sort of help my wife and I pay the bills. She was also a graduate student in psychology. And so I walked up the street to a place called Aurora, uh, which is in Carborough, uh, next to Chapel Hill. And, um, this wonderful chef named Gwen Higgins, saw something that allowed her to, you know, hire this guy who had never worked in a professional kitchen to come roll pasta and be a pastry cook. So, you know how graduate graduate schools are where most of your your seminars are in the afternoon. I was able to go in and work from seven to two or seven to three or whatever, and then go to a 4 p.m. seminar. So, so by, by show of hands, who still loves making pasta? Are the two of you raising hands? Sarah's yeah. raising hands. Cool. I love eating pasta. How, how funny is that? I know. So that it's so funny, John. I didn't, I had no, I mean, we've talked before, but I, I really didn't know about your experience in Italy and your experience with making pasta. And for those who are listening to the podcast, if you're new here, um, I love making pasta. And <laughs> Tony and I also studied abroad in Italy and fell in love, you know, with the whole culture of food and community mm. um, through that. So I, I understand exactly what I think I understand exactly what you mean when you say you loved the experience of going to the butcher shop and the bakery and the milk shop and all of these little places and, and picking out your food. So, um, heard and, <laughs> and yes, on all counts. Yeah. Well, point, one of the so. cool things that the, that our professor did, which was just genius. Um, and he is now a neighbor of my parents. So I get to continue to keep up with, with him. Uh, he is the, the definition of the, um, the nutty professor, but that said, he divided this group of 24 people into five cooking groups. And we were responsible for essentially feeding ourselves, feeding this, these small units of ourselves um, during the week. And that was the way it was during the semester. So we, as a little family, a little community, created a plan for every week um, and, you know, so we had to shop, we had to, you know, no one was allowed to sort of go off on their own and, you know, go to the other end of the Island and find the McDonald's or, you know, whatever was there yeah. at that time. And, um, it also allowed us to, as we met other young people in the neighborhood to, who were 
community members, citizens, Italians, mm-hmm. uh, to come in and you know teach us, uh, participate cool. in in the cooking and share whatever tiramisu or making pasta or you know some family dish. So that was, I mean, it was just it was it was brilliant. That's uh, so and cool. Probably the reason that I do what I do. Wow. Yeah, I love that. Well, our <laughs> yeah, our experience was not we were not forced to cook uh anything, but we definitely did and have a sense of community in our little apartment building and made dinners for each other yeah. and had Thanksgiving and all this stuff. So, yeah, that's that's very interesting. We'll we'll get so back to the yeah. We sh- I should answer the question about uh-huh. how how that goes to the CIA. <laughs> yeah. Um so I got this restaurant, uh, this job at Aurora, um, was cooking for a year there. Um, a gentleman named John Robinson, who had also worked at the restaurant, left about six months into my tenure and went off to the CIA. First person I ever knew. I didn't even know a culinary school existed at that point. Yeah. He goes off. He comes back, you know, halfway through and he's like, oh, this is great. And I'm in graduate school and I'm like, damn, I made the wrong decision this sounds like so much more fun to be learning uh, in culinary school. And I was sitting in a seminar at Professor Rule Tyson's house, sitting on his couch, talking about um, Wittgenstein's, Ludwig Wittgenstein's concept of craftsmanship. Mm. And... I said, I just stopped. I, I mean, this is this is the salient moment. I was sitting there on the couch, and my head left the seminar, and I was like, I don't know shit about <laughs> craftsmanship. I can't be sitting here talking, having this intellectual conversation in a graduate school seminar about craftsmanship when all I've ever done is sit on a couch <laughs> and, yeah. and, talk, and talk about this and that so um and that that's sort of the moment where i'm like all right in order for me to have this conversation here i need to i need to embrace a craft um and that's what i'm still doing i haven't made it back to to school yet but (laughs) (laughs) i'm still trying to get myself ready to go back and have that conversation about craftsmanship that's so interesting i think I mean, I don't know if most people would respond in the way that you did to that moment, but like I've had in my own, you know, small way, these moments where it's like you, I, you recognize the fraud in yourself or the dissonance where, you know, you act in a certain way or, or say that you are like, your ego is tied to this idea and you question how closely you're living with it. That moment for me showed up when, you know, Sarah, we were, we were just kind of t- talking about this uh, adjacent, but Sarah wanted to, loves making pasta, wanted to learn how to make pasta in a commercial kitchen, stages for several months in Brooklyn at a little like properly Italian restaurant that was 15 minutes walking from us. And so I go, well, you know, who am I? And I'm like, well, if I'm going to do something, uh, uh, meat, I, I, I believe like I, I like meat. I, I like eating it. I can rationalize that, you know, uh, homo sapiens are designed in some way to be, you know, meat eaters. 
is my assumption. But like, I also understand ethical arguments against it. So I was like, well, I don't have a, I don't have a f- grounds to debate this one way or another because I'm so far removed from being the Homo sapien that was hungry enough to kill something that's alive and then cook it. Uh, and so I went hunting for the first time months later, and then I, you know, uh, apprenticed in a slaughtering facility because it was the only place that would have me. And I took two hour trains out of Brooklyn into New Jersey and then uh, to this place not far from where I grew up because I needed to know what I would do if I was in that situation. It hasn't changed my life in so much as like now, I, years later, own a restaurant or own a butcher shop. But there was this moment of I need to know for myself, and I'm amazed that it's carried you as far as it has. I feel like we lost a tiny bit of the thread in your in your narrative because we're still only at CIA, <laughs> and you did this incredible run at at, at Blackberry Farms. So uh, you clearly uh, have this. Uh, to us at least and what what appears is like this drive you have this uh curiosity you have something that keeps you going i'm wondering uh once you get to school once you get this at bat with blackberry it's almost unheard of for a millennial sarah and i are millennials uh for a millennial to, to think of being in a single role for five years forget about 15 years what kept blackberry uh I'd say interesting to you. What kept you there as long as you were there? Well, um, maybe some of the answer to that is generational. I don't know. But um, I'll say this. There was also a time in the first six months when I was like, this is not for me. I hate this. I can't do this. Um, And that was a daily conversation that I had, you know, not that I wanted to not be a chef, but being there in that place was just whether it was drive that was making it feel too overwhelming. Like I really want to succeed, but I'm so far from it. Mm. Um, and you know, some of it was personality, uh, thing. Some of it was being in an alien land. You know, I had, I guess, I mean, I, when I said, I never thought I would live in East, the Hills of East Tennessee, it's like it's just like me saying I never thought that I would live on Mars. You know, it was it was something that was a very different place for me, um, and so you know I got to that point and basically I said to myself I said all right, John, you're gonna put your head down for five years, and you're gonna figure this out, and. And that's essentially how I went through those 15 years was the five-year check-in. So huh. that part, I think, is probably very generational. Uh, I don't know any millennial that <laughs> yeah. in my life yeah. that would that would say, but, but I, I, do, I do know that, I, I don't know, maybe it's unfair to say it's generational, but I yeah. do, do think there's something in that. Um, so essentially, I would... You know, like I said, we were we were all of us who were in that project, the first 25 people that were involved in that part of Blackberry Farm were um, naive. And so I would 
staff would go home 11, 1130 on every night. And I would, I would stay in my little office, which was, you know, the size of a shoe closet, um, for another hour and a half, two hours every night, trying to figure out what the hell I was doing. Hmm. Um, and as that began to feel more comfortable, uh, as I began to feel like I knew what was going on, then it became a lot more of the drive to how do we make it better? First, the drive was how do I figure out what the heck I'm doing? The second part was how do we, how do we look toward this vision? Yeah. Well, so I'm really curious what what were you doing in that office for an hour and a half for two hours? Were were you planning for the next day? Were you trying to figure out ordering things yeah, or all of those things? You know. Yeah. Thinking about uh, managing people, thinking about manage- managing food costs, thinking about you know writing menus that made sense. You know when I when I got there, um, it was very much a place like it wanted to be this great small resort hotel, but the the cuisine was great, but it didn't have really any real affiliation with the place. So that was sort of, and then again, back to the conversation about Venice, I mean, that was, you know, what I did there was an experience of a, of a place, a little neighborhood, the end of an island. Um, and so Blackberry and East Tennessee became my little neighborhood at the end of the island. And so I had to find those local producers who made you know, country ham and bacon or buttermilk or grew, grew vegetables. And the cool thing that happened very early on was that Chris Bell, the owner, uh, one of the owners said to me, I want you to write your vision of what you see Blackberry becoming, what you want it to be. Um, uh, Adam Sachs, when he did the profile of me uh, in Garden and Gun, just prior or just after Rhubarb opened, named that document the Manifesto, <laughs> and that again was a very valuable uh, exercise that someone else posed for me. That I just I, I took I took it really seriously, and that's what that was sort of the blueprint for the next at that point, whatever it was, 14, 13 years when, the, when we actually wrote that, when I actually wrote that. Wow. Wow. So there are like two things that came up for me when you said that one is, I think a, it's important to highlight and John, you probably can speak to this better than I can, but it seems like at that time there, you know, farm to table or like, you know, local serving local food like that at a restaurant was not really maybe fully trending yet and and I think it's interesting to note because in Italy that's how it is where you go to a region and they serve a very specific kind of food they source their ingredients from the guy next door or the farm that's nearby and it's very very hyper local in that sense so was that your experience like what what was going on in the world then in terms of local food and farm to table. So so two things. First there were some very influential chefs who were already working who are my heroes and remain to this day my heroes. Um 
who were doing this. Um, Frank Stitt in Birmingham, um, Louis Osteen, who is now deceased, and uh, uh, Bill Neal in Chapel Hill, who was at Crook's Corner, uh, and then Ben Barker uh, above all of those, mainly because from the restaurant perspective, he opened Magnolia Grill in Durham the year that I graduated from Duke, and he replaced my uh, hippie granola uh, grocery store called Wells, which was then a little unit called Wellspring Grocery. It's now a much bigger operation, but he took over that building, and I was pretty pissed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he turned it into Magnolia Grill, and that was my first experience of going to a restaurant that really did something that looked fun, that was intentional, that was using local product. Not that I knew that was even a thing, uh, but you know, all the things that Ben and Karen were doing at Magnolia Grill just was sort of like that experience in Venice where it's just like, okay, I get it. This is the way it's supposed to be. And that's why I resist. I mean, I think we've had this conversation before, but that's why I resist the phrase farm to table. And you said it yourself. This is how it's supposed to be. This is how it's done in a little town in Italy or a little region of Italy or whatever. That's just how it's done. Yeah. And that's sort of what I would that's when you know, that's that's how you're supposed to cook that's sort of how i feel about that so there's this um there's this continuum that i've seen somewhere i want to say it's in tim ferris's 4 hour chef where he talks about uh like the continuum of dining experiences and it doesn't it transcends food but it would be like a a diner that has a massive menu and then a uh, chef's tasting menu where no substitutions, no alterations, you sit down and food comes out. And how that continuum kind of speaks to the power dynamic from the diner to the creator of the food. And I'm just wondering how that all plays in your experience with food, with your restaurants and history in restaurants, and that idea of like, you know, in in Venice, they're probably not serving much cow-based meats as opposed to seafood because that's local. And you can go down and you can ask for a steak, but they're not going to have it. And so, you know, your requests as a diner don't necessarily matter much. And I'm where are you on that continuum? Not my best question, but that's, uh, that's what I'm, I'm thinking about is uh, the continue, the dining continuum. So uh, I'll do my best to answer that, um, at least mm -hmm. what I think I heard, um, and relate it back to the, the, the Blackberry history, for one. Um, and that is that one of the things after I looked up after year five, I looked up, all was cool. We were forging ahead. After I looked up after year 10, all was cool, forging ahead. When I got to year to that year 15, it just, uh, or getting close to that, it just felt like um, there's a certain romance of that sort of 
um, tasting menu, you know, rarefied uh, cooking uh, atmosphere that is uh, hard to break out of. But I, I, I got the feeling that I needed to do something different outside of that. Um, and that was really the impetus behind what would ultimately become rhubarb, which is, hey, you can you you can be you can cook really well and you can provide guest service uh, at the level that it was done and still to this day. I mean, Blackberry has the best guest service anywhere in the world. I will put that up, you know, and that's. Uh, I will put that up against anybody else's claim, um, but their sort of authentic ability to make people feel comfortable uh, is not necessarily something that you have to pay a thousand dollars a night for. That can happen at a place like rhubarb, uh, or you know, you know, you're 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 any t any restaurant in town, any any. Uh, bodega or trattoria or whatever you know that that type of feeling can can happen anywhere and that was sort of what the mission was uh with rhubarb um i will say that my so favorite restaurant in Asheville, speaking just to give props to diners is the waffle house um every every chef seems to love on, on tunnel road waffle yeah, house. uh sausage and hash brown bowl I mean, you know. Yes, I, I love that. And I remember, John, I remember you telling us about a um, Bitter Southerner podcast episode about Waffle House, I think. Was it the Bitter South yeah. Southerner? Yeah. Yes. We okay. listened to it. We listened to it. And, and, and I grew up with Waffle House. I grew up in the South and, you know, late nights eating pancakes and waffles and chocolate milk. But um, that really opened my eyes to sort of the culture that they've built there and so for anyone who's listening if you're interested in learning more about waffle house definitely go listen to stop this podcast episode. right now transfer over <laughs> to bitter southerner season three or whatever it was but that was uh that really was and it yeah. was informative to me as like you know i'm very much an outsider suspect that i will feel this way for a while but like i'm i'm learning and observing southern customs in some way or another pretty much every day and so this uh sort of anthropological review of Southern society via this welcoming community of the Waffle House was a very interesting lesson. And I do, I see that mirrored in what we've experienced at Rhubarb and what you've always vocalized as the objective of the the Ruplex and all of the, the properties that you own. Well, and I'm wondering, like, if you had to identify... I don't know, that magic formula or that magic mix of what makes, um, for example, the hospitality at Blackberry Farm so great or, or how you've incorporated that into rhubarb. Like, what is, for you, what is the formula? What is the the combination of things that creates that kind of atmosphere for a guest? That's a tough, tough question. Um, I think that authenticity is is a big part of it. And both as the as the leader of that gang, allowing people to be themselves 
uh, as long as they're the, their best selves. <laughs> um, and to, I, I, I'll go to cooking for just a second. I always said that the, I felt like the skill that I developed at BlackBerry was something that I call a sympathetic palate, which is that, and this is what I talked to our staff there about was, we want to cook stuff that people want to eat, stuff that people think tastes really good. It's not what we think, what we want to eat or what, which is the sort of no substitutions tasting menu, back to your point, Tony. Um, but we want to cook what people want to eat. Now we can fancy it up. We can, you know, there's this, we used to say there was this line between fancy and familiar that we tried to walk all the time, which is we're finding a really safe, uh, warm, fuzzy space on the plate for the food, but we're also, um, which is the familiar, but we're also doing the fancy and we're, you know, sharing a new ingredient or a new technique or, you know, a new flavor, but it's always couched in something that is uh, in some way approachable. So that's the food part of it. But the, um, but that same sort of sympathy, empathy is, I think, what makes great guest service. It's like, how, let me look at Tony and Sarah and figure out how they want to be treated. Um, you know, it's the other, it's the flip side of, of the golden rule, I guess, you know, but it's how. What's the vibe? How do they want to be treated? You know, what what, they, what did they come here for? Um, how can I listen to the cues and or see the cues as to what's going to make their experience here something that is not only you know great but is memorable even in the you know mildest way? Like, oh, you know, we had such a great time at Rhubarb. We should go back there. That feeling was was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's applicable to many different businesses. Really, it's the customers kind of always right or listen to what your customers are are saying and what they're asking for because then you can meet them there. Yeah. Um, so I think that's interesting. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your transition from Blackberry Farm to eventually opening a restaurant and then three places in Asheville <laughs> like how what what was the moment when you realized it was time to leave Blackberry Farm and then how did you know when it was time to create your own place well I mean going back to what I said a little a few minutes ago you know leaving Blackberry was many things it was you know finding yourself after another five years, lifting your head and realizing you weren't as comfortable, satisfied, happy, whatever, whatever it, it was, um, that you needed something that I needed something different. Um, also wanting to be, there's a, God, there's so much tied up in that. There's a lot about my family as well. Um, um, as as time as time ticked along, 
So I've been pretty blatant about my focus when I was at BlackBerry. As time ticked along, um, I realized that I wasn't, that where I was living wasn't where I wanted to live. Um, and I have good friends in Maryville, Tennessee, uh, relationships that I treasure. I got to be a soccer coach after I left and will always value those, uh, those few years when I wasn't a couple of years when I wasn't in a restaurant, but was doing something else as a break, uh, from being a chef and, um, but culturally, uh, frankly, I don't miss it. And, and, so what we, what Katie and I were looking for was something that was, um, had a little bit more texture to it. Um, yeah. And so Asheville, Asheville finds its way into your crosshairs right. and then was the move to Asheville to open a restaurant? Yeah. Was there a, no, and, yeah? and, and there was a moment where I flirted with doing that in East Tennessee, Knoxville or Maryville okay. or wherever, um, but that moment was quickly squashed by the recession um, and going to, you know, the, the neighborhood bank there and saying, you know, hey, I'm looking at this property. Let's talk about financing. And they're like, oh, this was this was be before anyone knew that there was a recession and that the that the that this housing bubble was about to burst. But the banks knew and they're like, we're not considering anybody for any kind of business loan. So, you know, forget about it. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, uh, and at that point it was like, okay, um, we had sort of, we had become quite enamored with Asheville over the time we lived in East Tennessee. It was only two hours away. We'd come over for concerts. My parents live in Winston Salem. It was the precise midpoint to, drop off kids uh, with mom and dad if we're going, you know, on a trip or something. And, you know, we, uh, I think Salsa was the only restaurant in downtown at that point. And we would come and park the car and Salsa didn't have a dining room. They just had their walk-up counter and like four stools. And we would, we loved Salsa or Salsas and, and, we would get our little clamshell and we'd go sit up in Pack Square. Um, and now I'm there. I'm not now. Now they're my neighbor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, so we had we had watched because we kept stopping here on the you know all the time. We had watched Asheville start to really grow and and see the the, the potential. Um, so yes, it was. Then it became. It was like okay, how do I do this? How do I open a restaurant? before I turned 50 um, and uh, where do I want to do it? Asheville was the only real answer. And mm -hmm. so we waited out the recession. We had a, our oldest son had just started high school. And um, so we let him finish out high school. We just like made a commitment to stay for four more years and my wife's practice was very successful and healthy and that was okay. And then we moved in, we moved in 11, 2011. 
Wow. Wow. And so meanwhile, all of this is happening. Are, are you teaching coaching soccer? Are you working in another restaurant? He's like, yes, okay. <laughs> well, uh, from 07 to, well, actually I'd started right before I left Blackberry. So really from 06 to uh, 11, I was coaching. I ran the, I ran the little Maryville soccer club. Uh, but at the same time, in 2009, the folks who run, who own Sunburst Trout, the Eason family, approached me about yeah. opening what was supposed to be just a one-season restaurant out in Cashers called Canyon Kitchen, because they had they had started to build this wonderful community in Cashers uh, on on family land, and then the recession hit, so they had a dozen houses. They had this uh, event barn uh, or community center barn that they had built that was gorgeous, um, but they only had 12. I'm going to get those numbers wrong, but let's say they had 12 houses in this neighborhood that was designed for 245 or whatever. So like, hey, John, um, you're not doing anything. Um, what would you think about coming over to Cashers and, and uh, doing this restaurant? You only have to do it Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We'll we'll rent an apartment for we'll rent a house for you in Cashers, um, and it'll be Memorial Day to Labor Day. You can basically stay in East Tennessee and come over three days a week during the summer. Um, so I did that. Wow, <laughs> and that still exists. It does, Am I, yeah. right? Canyon Kitchen. I think I've seen seen it. On advertisements, it's the most we've not been place to, to enjoy a meal in certainly in Western North Carolina. I mean, there are very few places that are prettier than that little canyon to have wow. a meal. So, Kenny Kitchen. So I did that in two thousand the summer after we opened Rhubarb, and then it became just too much. I needed wow. a helicopter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Heard, wow. heard, and so I mean, I, I, 2011. It's not exactly you're not as a nation. I don't think we're exactly out of a recession. What like do you? Have, is it a business plan that makes a restaurant happen? Are you, you know, uh, squirreling away money and it's entirely self funded? Like how does, how does one go from, you know, running a successful restaurant to opening a restaurant? It seems. Even in, in that step, that seems like a very big step. Um, running yeah. Blackberry and then running Canyon. A lot of support from your spouse um, who works just as hard as you do, I do, um, who's very good at what she does, uh, allowed us to... Yes, yeah, squirrel away essentially every penny that I earned at Canyon Kitchen in the five years that I was there went into the rhubarb fund <laughs> um, and gave us some base for um, for creating the restaurant. Uh, and uh, uh, honestly, um, again, it's it's one more of those sort of fortuitous moments um, of luck, good fortune, whatever. Banks don't loan money to start to, for people to start restaurants. 
I mean, they just generally don't. And uh, I happened to meet the folks uh, at what was then Asheville Savings Bank and now uh, is First Bank. And they uh, they did. Wow. And so is that is that because restaurants are just the yeah the percentage of of the ones that make it is so low historically i mean i don't know the i don't know if i would loan someone money to start a restaurant yeah Uh, i mean it's high risk and and, you know banks don't like high risk um but um you know i think that's also a reflection of of where Asheville was at that time and how well they understood what the, I think there was a sort of a community sense that that could be something that would help Asheville come out of a recession. The downtown area had already begun to, to um, sort of be developed with restaurants and other cool stuff going on. And, you know, I think there was a, there was a sense at Asheville Savings Bank that that wasn't, it could be a really good thing for the community. What was in that rhubarb location before uh, y'all showed up? Because it seems like, you know, when they say the three most important parts of uh, businesses like location, 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 that's about as ideal of a location as I can think of after being here for a year. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and I had I had basically been through every inch of available real estate in this town, uh, in downtown and surrounding downtown from 2000. Well, before I was looking while I was at Canyon kitchen, I would come over maybe once a month to try to walk the streets and see what was available and see what was happening. So, I mean, this was a long time in the planning. Um, but so the restaurant that was, I was at a dead end. Um, I got a call from a friend of mine who lives in town and said, I just heard that Bistro 1896 is going to close. This was the weekend after um, uh, Valentine's Day of 2013. And it, I believe that Bistro had been there for 16 years. Uh, and so before that, uh, the space in Rhubarb that is the where the wood oven is, was a restaurant called La Caterina, which, as legend has it, was one of the best Italian restaurants for, you know, hundreds of miles. Um, And um, so, yeah, those are the, I mean, it was also, that space was also an adult bookstore in the 70s. Um, And there was a cigar shop. Uh, Finkelstein's, uh, which is still down the street, uh, the pawn shop mm-hmm. was uh-huh. in the the middle storefront of rhubarb for from its origin until I don't know when. But. Yeah, I guess that's also a good point. Did you take over storefronts, and it, has rhubarb expanded from where it started, or did you always have this footprint? It's, uh, it's always been in? that footprint um, because okay. Bistro, uh, when La Caterina left in 02 or 03 had taken over uh, they took over that space they had taken over the, the what was the lobby of the adler building to be our bar space um the footprint has expanded 
you know, behind us because we, we took right. the building that French Broad Chocolate Lounge was in um, to become the Rue and then our event space upstairs. So. Got it. So much history behind these places. Well, I, I mean, I, so I want to get to the Rue and Benny on Eagle as well. But I'm curious to know in those first few years of running Rhubarb, like what what were the mistakes you made or like what, what were those key learning moments where you were like, I, okay, I got this now. Like I'll never make that mistake again. Um, wow. There's were, I mean, there's so many things. I wouldn't say that, I mean, there were, so there were some hiring mistakes. Uh, there were some people mistakes and those are the biggest uh, but they're also, um, they make themselves pretty obvious pretty quickly. Um, and so, you know, when you're starting a new restaurant, you don't know how many people you're going to need. You don't know, you know, there's so much you don't know. Um, so that, I mean, that was that I had to, as, as much time as I had focused on running a restaurant at, um, both Canyon Kitchen and at Blackberry, I had to educate myself on all things business still. I mean, that is, there's, there's, you know, there's two parts of, there's many parts of my life, but, you know, running a restaurant as a restaurant is one thing with food and service, et cetera. And then running a business is a completely different kind of understanding what's happening week to week and tracking it and analyzing it and seeing what you can do better uh, from that side of things was something that I really didn't, you know, I was, I think I was better educated than many, but I still think that that was a, there were a lot of things that I had to improve on for sure. Can I ask what kind of thing, what, what, what stands out as maybe an IE in that space? Is it forecasting or tracking sales? Is, what are examples of business lessons? So all of that, but I think the thing that's the most embarrassing to me, and so I feel very comfortable in sharing it with y'all, um, is that I didn't, I didn't balance my books for three months. I had, I mean, I, I had money to, st I had, um, uh, blanking on the term, but I had, you know, I had base funds to operate out of money was coming in from the credit card, um, uh, you know, nightly, uh, drop processor, processor yeah. um, I was writing checks to uh, to vendors, et cetera, but I had no, and I, I mean, I had set up QuickBooks and 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 all that, and I was working out of QuickBooks, but I had no sense of whether anything was coming. I mean, I knew it was coming and I knew it was going, <laughs> but beyond that, and I, I, was, I was like, yeah. oh, okay, all this stuff. Do, do you have something like a bookkeeper today that, that sits as an intermediary or do you own that uh, responsibility? Well, uh, I owned it for, uh, so again, I, one of those Blackberry moments, I was like, all right, you're going to figure this out, Fleer. And so 
that's how I spent my day my day off was doing the bookkeeping and paying the bills. And then we hired a bookkeeper uh, who has been a godsend um, just in, in doing, taking care of us in that way. But then with the pandemic, you know, that's not something we, that's something that we had to put on hold. So um, Mm -hmm. she is helping us uh, some, she's not back to doing the full, uh, the full load. So, and you know, to, uh, that's what I was doing this morning <laughs> before we started yeah. to talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel you on that. I feel like, uh, our first year in business, we sort of like fumbled our, I mean, we still are fumbling our way through understanding, um, accounting and all that stuff. And I'm embarrassed because I went to school for accounting oh. and hated it. Um, so I forgot. I, I think I, I think I like purposely like blocked out everything I learned about accounting. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's one of the things. One of our most valuable investments has been hiring an accountant and a bookkeeper to help us with those things because yeah. they are such time-consuming um, things. And if you don't know how to move everything around, it can be confusing. So yeah, and I, just to echo that, I, I was always of the mind like it'll work itself out, like. Uh, revenue yeah. is the answer to all problems. Yeah. It'll work itself out once <laughs> it works out. And well, you're so excited. I think as a business owner, you're so excited about the thing that you love doing that it's like, oh, I'll just worry about that later. Yeah. Those numbers, you know, whatever. Um, definitely but can relate to that. My my lesson would be that though, while yes, revenue is something of a solve, like the closer I've paid and we've paid attention to all of the details, the better the thing that we've been hoping and tracking for has gone. So whether it's, uh, you know, paying attention to all of the little uh, parking meter slips that we have in town when we would come in and try and meet with people for coffee uh, and knowing, okay, we spent exactly $13 on parking this month. Not much, didn't hurt us, but like, good to know. And like every good to know that we got to, uh, I think our business took a, a slightly better step in the right direction. But the first six months were something of a mess. <laughs> it was good to know that when we went to an accountant to try and, you know, uh, I'll say uh, unwind some of it. He's like, hey, this is actually really good. You guys did a great job. I was like, I don't believe you, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for the flattery. Yeah. <laughs> flattery is, uh, yeah, that is my currency of choice. Um, Okay, so yes. hiring people, you learned a little bit about that. It seems like you learned a little bit about just running a business in general and bookkeeping. So then, then at what point were you like, okay, I got this, and let's let's do it again with the root? So how did you know? It was just so easy? Is that what happened? <laughs> it, wasn't, it was not easy at all, and we were not ready. Uh, but when French Broad decided they were going to move up, onto the square there was a space that was immediately behind us that was completely accessible to our the basement of rhubarb um, where our office is and where our storage is and all of that and so it was like well maybe we could maybe we could do something um we had also just uh at that point kind of uh we're on the way at least to hiring Kaylee Laird, our pastry chef. And I'm just like, well, you know, 
if we had a little bakery, um, then, you know, we could round out our pastry program. We could hire more staff to, to, um, to sort of run a full scale pastry and bread operation. Um, you know, by this time rhubarb was, uh, had been open for a little over a year and we were like, uh, people all call us all the time to want to host events here and we just don't have the the space to do it. Um, so we say no, like flat out, no ever. I mean, we never did a large event. We never took an event. So that was a, that was an opportunity. It was a business opportunity. And, and the way that those two buildings are related, uh, rhubarb's first floor, uh, is the same as the third floor of the Rue. And so that became very accessible, to our kitchen at Rhubarb, but we also, uh, French Broad had done all of their baking up there in that space anyway, and it had been set up as offices instead of um, what it looks like now. Offices and storage is what they used it for. So, I mean, I guess we, we sort of just talked ourselves into it, like we can make it work. There are some opportunities here. Um, and we definitely want to choose our neighbors if we have the option to do that. So we'll choose ourselves to be our neighbors because uh, who knows what could happen the other way. So, no, we, you know, there wasn't a moment when we were like, oh, we need to do this and therefore we need to find a space to do it in. It's just one of those things where the opportunity presented itself and there were some ideas that had been bubbling that behind the scenes that weren't really formulated that we then sort of had to formulate and figure out how to make it all run as the Ruplex. Yeah. Which is the best name of a place that there's ever been. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. It's hard to describe. So then how would you, um, for for people who might not be as familiar with the Rue versus Rhubarb, how would you differentiate those two locations, the objectives, what they do? It sounds like bread and pastries, but is it more than that? Bread, bread, pastry, lunch, breakfast, very casual, um, cafe, uh, very oriented toward sort of an Appalachian pantry that you know, where we can feature local ingredients, not only food ingredients, but also, you know, um, sort of uh, food related, table related goods. Uh, yeah. Well, and for those that are listening, uh, I have to say, we, we love all of the Fleer restaurants and eateries, but we frequent the Rue very often and are huge fans of the biscuit Holy sandwiches smokes. that are there. <laughs> if you haven't had one, like you've got to try it. They're yeah. the best biscuit sandwiches I've ever had. And if if you, you if I'm the only person from New Jersey that you're loosely acquainted with, um, a you're welcome or I'm sorry. But B, uh, New Jersey and New York has a very specific thing where breakfast sandwiches is like. I don't know. I, I think there's a flag in the sand around like this is the thing that New Jersey loves these taylor ham egg and cheese breakfast sandwiches uh, on a roll or on, on a, a bagel roll, or something on, like on something 
we came down and saw a breakfast sandwich on the menu on a biscuit. Had to try it. And then I kind of disowned all New Jersey breakfast sandwiches. I was like, this is the new <laughs> line in, by which all other sandwiches are uh, are judged by me. I just, I remember, uh, I remember that first bite vividly. Sarah, I think, remembers the uh, Bene first biscuit bite. Yeah, so that's a perfect segue. So that that's actually where we, I think, first had a biscuit from any of your places. I don't think we had yet gone uh-huh. to the Rue. We we actually ate at Benny first when we were visiting town and had the Benny biscuit and instantly fell in love. And then I went on this like five month long journey of trying to discover the recipe. And we'll save that story for another day. But anyways, I became obsessed <laughs> with them. Um and and then later we made the connection that oh Benny on Eagle is a part of the Rue and Rhubarb and we were like, this makes so much sense because everything is fantastic. So but tell us there's the, There's biscuit, the biscuit link, link exactly. <laughs> um, but but talk to us too a little bit about how Benny came came along. Was that you know something that you really wanted to do and sought out to do, or did that also come to you more as an opportunity that was presented? Yeah, I mean, uh, very much so. Option B <laughs> because after opening a second restaurant way earlier than I wanted to, or even, I don't even know that I ever wanted to have more than one restaurant, but somehow I blinked and I had two with rhubarb and the rue. So I was quite satisfied and happy. Um, and the, the folks that were developing the foundry hotel called me and said, uh, Jane Anderson at Asheville independent restaurant, uh, association has told us that we should talk to you about being our restaurant partner for this hotel that we're, um, that we're developing over on the block. And, you know, my, my gut was like, hell no. You know, I'm just, I didn't, those weren't the words that came out of my <laughs> mouth. Uh, but it was like, you know, I can't, uh, yeah. no, and you know there you know I think all of us who are even moderately successful in this business get calls on a regular basis from someone who wants you to take your restaurant brand and open in Charlotte or in South Asheville or you know oh why don't you come you know because I grew up in Winston Salem probably I probably had half a dozen times in the last five years when someone from Winston-Salem has emailed or called and said, hey, you know, you're from Winston. Why don't you come open a restaurant here? It's like, I mean, that's just not how I'm built. I, others others may well be and bless their hearts. But um, so I agreed to, to chat with them about this opportunity. Um I walked through the space, which at that point was completely they they were only part of the way through the demolition. It was it was a big giant mess. But um it was post twenty sixteen election and there was something inside me that said um this is a neighborhood in decline. 
it had, you know, even in the few years that I had already lived here, I had seen sort of businesses close on the block and, and the street get quieter and quieter. And, you know, I'd begun to learn a little bit about the history of, uh, of the black community in, in Asheville and of race and race relations in Asheville. And I'm like, if I don't at least pitch the idea of doing a restaurant that is devoted to celebrating that neighborhood and celebrating um, the West African and African American influence on the food that I've been cooking for, you know, at this point, 20 years, uh, if I don't at least pitch that, then someone's going to come in and put a Wendy's. Red Lobster, yeah. you know, knockoff uh, in this in this space, and that's gonna stink. Um, so I did. I pitched. I pitched that, um, and we go back and forth. Uh, David Tart, who's the primary uh, owner developer of the foundry, says it was like two months before I called him back uh, to uh, respond to his query and then I tell him that after I pitched that idea uh, of what I thought that restaurant should be uh, that it was about a month before he got back in touch <laughs> with me <laughs> so I don't think either of those figures are necessarily yeah. correct but you know it just kind of goes to show you how it wasn't um, it wasn't an automatic thing and it was you know I think well thought through on their part and you know there was only one way that I was going to do that particular restaurant project because I wasn't interested in doing anything else mm. anyway. So, yeah, it's one of those things where an opportunity was presented and I kind of had to work my way wow. through it. <laughs> wow. I, I That stands out to me. I don't know... I don't know that there's many times... Well, maybe I'm just making something up, but I'm impressed... By A, one uh, that, that shows up for me is like your patience, it seems, throughout all of this. And then your ability to also seize spontaneous opportunity. And I'll, I'll highlight a couple moments. The five-year increments with which you were thinking when you were back at BlackBerry seems less common for most people to be able to pull off or even to conceive of. Uh, I know that my mind doesn't necessarily think in five year increments. I think at five days or five hours, right? Like that's <laughs> I'm, I'm much more proximate than that. And then uh, knowing that maybe you wanted to open a restaurant, but the willingness to spend several more years uh, in East Tennessee before moving to Asheville versus being like I'd say eager and taking whatever was available in Asheville during the 2009 decline, if it was possible to do it, some people might've done it. And, and how fortuitous all of that seems to have been because you have now this incredible location. And when the back side opened up, you seized the opportunity before you had necessarily built it into your five-year plan. I just think that those two, uh, personality types seem to be in conflict, but it's amazing that they both exist in you. That's my positive feedback and not a question. I think it's incredible. That's like, I don't, I don't know if I'm either of those two people, but I, I see it in you and I'm amazed by it. 
Well, and that's, I guess, you know, that goes back to, I think what I said at the beginning, which was that I feel very fortunate and very lucky. And there have been a lot of things that have um, happened that I didn't earn or deserve, um, you know, by, by normal metric uh, of you know, work hard and, and get results. It's um, not that I, not that I don't work hard, but, you know, in terms of, in, you know, driving toward certain yeah. results. Yeah. I, 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 I'm also, I'm also reminded when you say patience, because I have been accused of that quite often. Um, there is uh, one of my favorite authors and who was also a, a English professor of mine at, Duke is a gentleman named Reynolds Price, and there's a line in one of his books where he describes someone as being as patient as the floor. Uh, and um, sometimes I imagine that that's that that I'm that character <laughs> getting getting walked as over. I love that. for a lot. <laughs> It might, it might be a, a different discussion, but I can I can argue for various other things that the that the floor does for the world. This is true. I can I can think of that as well. Well, I think that I just want to go about highlight that for a second because I think that there is this what I see what I sense is that there's this combination of um, perseverance and moving towards the goal that you want. And then also just being open to those opportunities. Because I think that sometimes people, and I'm, when I'm saying people, I'm probably talking to myself, but <laughs> they, they're so focused on what they're doing that they, they don't see what's around them or, or welcome other opportunities. And so they miss those, those things. And so what I see in you, what I congratulate you on is, is that perseverance, but also that you know, openness to new opportunities that you might not have planned or expected to have come in your 10 year plan or whatever it might be. And, <laughs> and perhaps the, the opportunity that no one saw coming is in the 2020 uh, early days of 2020 when a pandemic hits uh, the globe. And so uh, there's, I, I want to transition quickly to like present tense, what's happening in your world. And then we also need to, you know, ask you a little bit about Asheville. So as we transition towards the end-ish of this conversation, how has whatever version of your personality that has sat, let's say, at the forefront uh, evolved in a even new, like his restaurants are, are, can be scary or are seemingly on the outside and scary in their own way. How has ban being a restaurateur of multiple locations during a pandemic uh how is that good, bad, ugly, or an opportunity? How are you thinking about it today? Well, there is a, and this may speak to what Sarah was just saying, but there's a a phrase that I have had uh, posted at my desk since the early days of BlackBerry. Um, and I told talked to you then about, you know, that things were not always bright and shiny, that there were, there were some bad times. Um, and, but this has always been sort of at my very core. And it's an old Taoist saying that says, 
Barns burnt down. I can see the moon. Mm. So, um, I can sum up my approach to the pandemic that way. I can, <laughs> um, you know, it is, and that might be the that might be the place to leave it because everything else seems like um, business speak, you know, there are opportunities, you know, in, in defeat, there are opportunities and, you know, in, in, in struggle, there's, you know, all of those things, but it's simply a perspective of saying, all right, this has happened, something I cannot control. Um, what can I control? What can I see? Um, it's not that bad because the moon is up yeah. there and, and I'm okay. Um, that's may, it certainly oversimplifies the situation, but that is, uh, that is the, the North star for me in terms of, uh, how to, how I walk through a situation like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if I want to say anything more yeah. than that. It's just like, that's, that's, um, yeah, there's been crappy stuff that happened. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's a struggle. Yes. Restaurants have it harder than a lot of other businesses, but, you know, I also find myself thinking about, you know, on the way to my car every day, I, I look at, um, at the movie theater and they're still closed, yeah. you know? I've got, <laughs> I've got a full patio. I've got a healthy staff. I've got, you know, we're, we're, we sort of modulated to, uh, uh, we had to, we've had to make several adjustments, but I think everybody's embraced now that we're just, we're only doing patio dining at, at rhubarb, you know, at when we, when we launched into that, I was like, all right, we've got this great opportunity to have our little kind of Parisian cafe out on the sidewalk. And, you know, it makes me pretty happy to look out those windows every day and see and, you know, and see people enjoying themselves and having good food and drink and conversation. And it's not the same as a bustling restaurant uh, like, you know, the before times of rhubarb, but it's something that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, before we transition to sort of our last little bonus what we call the bonus round section um what's on the horizon for you i mean is there apart from of course getting through the pandemic and making everything work that way is there anything um that you're hoping to do in the next few years any new projects Oh shoot! You said or, or just milestones. Uh, with I don't the know. Project. Like, like, do you do you want to write a cookbook? Do you want to open another place or whatever you can share uh, with that? I don't want to open another place. Um, I want to continue in terms of our businesses. I want to continue to develop my team um, and key people in my team to really you know, potentially uh, become owners, part owners of, of any of those outfits. Um, um, and I think that there's real possibility there. I've got, 
they're great folks that work with me and I'm very fortunate. Um, I've always, I enjoy writing. Uh, I've always found it incredibly uh, difficult. So I'm sorry, that didn't, that, that, those two can't be the same. Um, I, I like writing. I think I can do it pretty well. Uh, I find it really difficult. Um, so I, I wonder if at another stage that I'm in my life that I might write something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it will be a cookbook. Um, it'll be it'll be uh, Zen in the art of running a kitchen. Maybe that is maybe that is exactly yeah what the, it is. the memoir of uh, a chef finding himself through craftsmanship. Well, I'm, and maybe and maybe that's exactly it. Uh, I've been intrigued recently. I've been was listening to um, David Chang and uh, Lisa Donovan speak uh, about Lisa is someone I've known for a long time. Um, uh, she has a new book out called The Lady of Perpetual mm. Hunger, I think is the name of the. She's a pastry chef in Nashville. Um, I've been in. I've honestly, it's funny you asked me that question, but but listening to her talk about writing this book has made me more than ever before think about the possibility of doing mm -hmm. something like that. Um, but most of all, what I want, like what's on the horizon before um, all of my three adult boys uh, get too far away from where we are now um, uh, I have told all of them, including uh, my wife, that my life, my next life monument is to walk the Camino mm. uh, del Santiago in, in Spain. So my hope is that sometime in the next two or three summers, um, when they are uh, done with college classes and uh, before they're playing semi-pro soccer in the summer and when my oldest one is transitioning between jobs that we all just need to plan this to happen at the same time so we can take a month or two or however, I don't even know you know how we would do it when we would do it but that's something that I heard yeah when you say horizon that's 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 where my mind goes yeah amazing, <laughs> yeah. amazing. I I yeah Hope you can make time for that because it does sound pretty, pretty amazing. Well, I feel like there are, are so many more questions that I want to ask you, but we are coming to the end of our time. So we will have to do a part two, I think, uh, eventually. Um, but we're moving into what we call the bonus round or the speed round, but it's not really a speed round. It's, it's just a few more lighter questions than what we've been talking about before. Um, Tone, would you like to kick our speed round off? I would love to. Just after this commercial break. <laughs> so yeah, I think uh, an important question that everyone is wondering is uh, in terms of football. Soccer. Syria. No Champions League. What is your what is your preferred soccer football uh, league? Uh, 
La Liga and the Premier League, uh, depending. It's not depending. I love them both. But I have, do you have a, do you have a club that, it, that you bleed for? League. Barcelona is my club in uh, La Liga. Um, and I think the German League was so smart to go back during the pandemic and start early earlier than everybody else because now even though i paid attention to it you know the fact that that was all i could watch for six weeks uh, after being starved of of football for for months <laughs> um i now sort of find myself as a uh a fan of what's happening in germany as well so but you know honestly i'll watch anything how much <laughs> yeah I, I would I would have imagined that it's, uh, your time in Italy might have put you uh, might have put Italy on the map for you, but it, they're at least fourth seed in your overall league. Yeah. That's amazing. Cool, fair. Well, I'm going back to food for a second. <laughs> the next um, podcast is all about <laughs> t- Tony and John talking football. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Away. I can ask questions. <laughs> Don't ask me any. Exactly. Um, I want to know, like, what is your go-to comforting dish? Mm. Like, like when you're having a bad night or a bad day or whatever, like, what is that one dish that you just makes you feel better? Um, Gosh, uh, right now, tomato sandwich. 100%. Yeah. I think you're the second person to talk about a tomato sandwich on the podcast so far. How is your tomato sandwich executed I believe white bread is mandatory, but it might not well, be the case. Um, here's something that I have not shared with you before, and that is that I have, uh, but this is how I introduced myself to my staff the very earliest days of rhubarb, is that I have an irrational fear of white bread. So, uh, Tell us more. I don't, I, Get it out of I, I mean, maybe it was... You can't. How can you trust it? What is that? What what makes white bread? Like like I get like it. sliced, yep. you know, pre-sliced. Uh, what's that? What's that? Sally. What was the name of Sarah? Yeah, Sarah, yeah. Lee. Sarah Lee. Marita yeah, bread, that kind of bread. Bunny bread. All that. Mm. I don't know. It's it's it may be buried deep in my childhood, but I really don't know. Uh, hence the irrationality of it. Uh, so no, it's uh, it is it is uh, non-traditional in that it's. That it gets made on lightly toasted, good, no, on just good lightly bread. toasted <laughs> whole it. wheat grocery store bread. It does have to be square and you know toastable and mm-hmm. uh, you know not very substantial, because it should by the end of Correct. it be something that you kind of hold in the palm of your hand and you know stuff the last bite yeah. in your mouth because it's all <laughs> falling apart. But it's just tomatoes. Are you yeah. gray sea salt? Yep. Um, Cracked pepper and Duke's mayonnaise, and that is it. Got it. No raw onion, nope. very important to note. And then uh, with food media, uh, my mind goes to movies, but you might not be a movie consumer. I don't know yet. Uh, has there been a movie that has really captured the essence of being in a restaurant or being a cook, chef, lover of food? Wow, um, I am a um, I am a movie consumer. Uh, all my 
all my kids boys have a they there's a running list of films that they have to watch before they go off to college so uh when i was in college i managed the movie theater so that was my that was my part-time job oh, wow. i managed the art cinema in durham which is now called which it was then called the carolina theater and is still that but uh so uh but food movies um i don't know um Maybe my favorite is like Water for Chocolate, but I don't know whether that's movie, like foodiness, or just the sort of romance of it. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's not my favorite movie. It's not, yeah. I mean, it's a long way from it, but when I think about food yeah. movies, um, mm. Babette's Feast, that, you know, that those sorts of the ceremony of yeah which is yeah. completely antithetical to my way of running restaurants but that <laughs> piece of it yeah yeah um well our last question I'll, I'll ask you um so second to last question i'll ask you sorry which is uh if we had a magic wand or someone in our audience had a magic wand what one thing would you ask for right now? And it can be anything. Like it could be a tomato sandwich <laughs> if that's what you want. Um, wow. Uh, a radical change. This is a powerful uh, magic wand, right? Uh, a, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, super, super powerful. powerful. Yes, uh, a radical change in the way that we run our country and our communities. Heard, <laughs> and now for the final, final. Where in the World Wide Web would people go to find you, your restaurants, hear more about what you're up to? Um, I'm not a huge social media person, but uh, would you're on Instagram. John posts every week the produce bundles. So that's, uh, (laughs) what am I? John Fleer123 on Instagram. Uh, Jay Fleer on Twitter. Yes. Uh, The Rue. Rhubarb AVL on uh, Instagram for the two restaurants. Benet on Eagle. Instagram for Benet. Um think that's we'll link yeah, out to yeah, all the have, restaurants and, we'll and everything as well but I, I i would also say um if you want to talk to john just go to rhubarb or <laughs> benny and ask for him because he's probably what, there that's what i was gonna say you took the word right out of my mouth <laughs> <laughs> well john thank you so much for joining us on the podcast um it truly is an honor and we will have to do this again maybe a year from now when the world looks a little bit different um because again we have a lot of i have a lot more questions that i'd love to ask you but Absolutely. Th- thank I you look forward again. To part two um this has been a lot of fun thank you john cool so we're in what i'd consider we'll clap but it's, we're in a bonus round anything we missed anything you want to add i know that we want to respect your time as we're rapidly approaching um no, but we should do this again. We should do, I mean. I'd love to. It, I, I, when I, 
I know I, y'all. I don't know. Did you listen to the podcast that I did? I have. We haven't yet. As a rule, but we try I, to yeah, avoid it until um, after. I mean, I just bo- both of them. I have come up both that one, which was shorter than this, and then even today, come up and at the end of it and felt like there's uh, that we barely kind of tickled the. Yeah. The, and, you know, like that's just maybe it's because I'm more reflective now listening to these guys, Lisa, talk about her book and um, all the experiences. And yeah, so maybe I just. Yeah, there's some I mean, you have, you have three you have such a long story yeah. and they're in, in these three places. And I know we really wanted to tell that story to make sure we, you know, unfolded that. But there's so much. I'm sure we can have you have to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, and it's also I think that that just the nature of these podcasts, and that's why we go with the longer form, because like at you know at the cost of some listeners maybe saying I don't have two hours, the truth doesn't come out or the meat doesn't come out in the appetizers. Just can't like with the way these work out. The most meaningful moments are typically. 90 minutes in or 84 minutes in after all of the other stuff has been worked out. Yeah. One more thing before you go, I'm going to take a quick uh, picture <laughs> of you on the screen for our Instagram. Can you just give everyone a, little a wave? wave? Hey, Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Instagram from Jim. Perfect. <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Guys. Thank you, Tom.